Why, hello there. It's Dylan Maddox here to welcome you to another episode of the Bandroom Podcast. Can you imagine? And I'm, I'm so glad that you could join because we have a super great episode for you today. And I truly mean it this time. I know I say it every time, but this is a great episode. But before we get to that great episode, please do me a huge, a giant favor. I ask it every week. Head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts like this one and give the Bandroom Podcast a rating and a review. Why, you ask? Some people actually do ask me this. And it's because it's going to help other people find the podcast, educating more people, and like I always say, bringing more joy into all of their lives. And if there was ever time for more joy, it's now. So go give the podcast a rating and a review. My goodness, there is just so much to update you on. We have some very exciting things happening here at the Bandroom Podcast, the first of which is a new series called The Bandroom Bookshelf. So every couple of months, I'll be selecting a book for us to read, and I'll be interviewing the writer of said book. So this will be your opportunity to hear from more wonderful people, but also to learn and grow along with me, which was, you know, one of the original mandates of the Bandroom Podcast. You can even submit some questions that I can ask the author, and hopefully they will answer it. So you're probably wondering who our first author is going to be, and I am very excited to announce that it is L.A.-based composer and writer Dale Trumboer, and we'll be reading her book, Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. So if there was ever a time to read a book such as this, it is now. And you'll be able to hear that episode on November 30th. So in the meantime, go to Amazon and get your copy so that you can follow along. It's kind of like a like a, a podcast book club. You can find that book in the episode description, or you can even go to our website, bandroompod.com, where it is on our list of recommended books for you to read. If you haven't already, go check out BRP Live, which is a new series of interviews I've been doing. And yes, you, you guessed it, they're live. Well, they were live. They're not live anymore. But um, you can hear some conversations with people like trombonist, composer, arranger, Christian Overton, composer, Kate Nishimara, conductor and composer, Giovanni Santos, um, clarinetist, social media influencer, and founder of the virtual concert band, Laura Campbell, aka Laura Clarinetist, if you want to find her on Instagram. And just last week, we spoke with manager of programs and education at Music Counts, Canada's music education charity, Nick Godso. So there's lots of great conversations for you to listen to and resources to help you navigate this new exciting year we find ourselves in. You can check those out wherever you are listening to this podcast, or you can even go see us by subscribing to our YouTube. Join me November 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be joined by one of my closest, dearest friends. You hear his music every time you listen to this podcast now, composer E.K.R. Hamill. So now, on to today's episode. I don't think it's any surprise you clicked on the episode so you know who the guest is. We are very excited. I keep saying we, but let's be real. It's it's just me, and it's a horrible habit I've got myself into by saying we. Like, I have a, a, a giant team of people behind me right now. 
the producer in the corner. Anyway, I'm very excited to welcome back Dr. Jillian McKay uh, of the University of Toronto. This is very exciting because Jillian was the first ever guest way back in September of 2017. It was great to be able to dive into some deeper subjects with Jillian during this conversation. Everything from how she's been doing during the pandemic, conducting pedagogy, an important discussion on addressing our privilege and biases as conductors, and even how her meditation practice has improved her as a music educator and conductor. If you haven't already, please go listen to our first chat, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. It was recorded in her office at U of T with my little Zoom recorder. Um, So the quality isn't superb, but you can certainly learn a lot more kind of biographical information there. And part of the reason I was so excited to speak with her again was to improve upon that audio quality. However, it was not to be. So here's my disclaimer. I, at the beginning of the interview, I thought my nice fancy microphone was on. And guess what? It was not on. But luckily, my laptop microphone did pick up our conversation. So you can still hear it. So I, I guess that's going to mean that, that Jillian's going to have to come back for another conversation. Third time the charm. It's going to be the best quality you've ever heard in your life. Just think about it, folks. So without further ado... Here is my conversation with Dr. Jillian McKay. Is the wonderful, the returning. Dr. Jillian McKay from the University of Toronto. So welcome to the band room, Dr. McKay. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yes, it's very exciting because you were the first ever interviewed guest of the band room podcast. Um, And I know our last conversation was, uh, I've been calling it kind of a biopic. So today we kind of get to dive into some deeper things, which is is, uh, very exciting. Um, So the first thing I'm going to ask is, how have you been doing in this new exciting world that we live in? Well, you know, fine and not fine and then fine and then not fine, you know. <laughs> I think it's, I've, I've been on the same path as, as a lot of people. Um, those of us who, whose work has been affected by this, I think, um, are all feeling, you know, there's, there's nothing normal about, about this moment. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, I have work and I home and, and neither at this moment are, are in any danger so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. And you know we're we're trying to do what trying to do what we can, right? Everybody's trying to trying to as it as it stretches out, trying to make um, uh, workarounds that, that feel less and less um, temporary, you know, they feel something that feels a little bit more substantial every day. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing that I, I've also been trying to remind myself of is that as much as we like in, in our heads, maybe in the moment we complain <laughs> about everything that's happening, but to think that we have a job in the in the field that we're trained in is a very uh, wonderful thing. And like you mentioned, having a a roof over your head and, and and being able to provide for yourself is a wonderful thing that not everyone has at this time. Yeah. Um, I know um, 
we've had many conversations uh, with with our colleagues across the country about kind of what e what each school is doing when it comes to ensembles. So I'm wondering how um, in this new music education landscape that we find ourselves in, uh, what what how do you how have you approached doing ensembles at the University of Toronto? Yeah, well, uh, our situation excuse me at Toronto is we are pretty much fully online. I shouldn't say pretty much. We are fully online. Uh -huh. uh, our contemporary music ensemble is doing some uh, some small things in person and some recording projects, uh, just because the makeup of the group is smaller. Um, but the orchestra and the both the wind bands are online. We've moved um, from a six-hour-a-week schedule to a two-hour-a-week online schedule, um, and we've shifted the course from uh, credit and graded to a, to a credit, non-credit okay. uh, situation. So we're not having to deal with assessment in the strangeness, um, mm -hmm. which I find um, a tremendous relief because we're really not able to do a lot of things that would be particularly meaningful for assessment. So we are um, uh, trying to uh, meet as many of the normal outcomes that are as we can in different ways. Obviously, it's it's different, but we're also doing some things that we might not do otherwise. We're going deeper together into some scores, mm -hmm. um, uh, keeping in mind that not everybody is as geeked out about band or chorus as the rest of us are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we're also having some some guests in. We've had some beautiful players from the Toronto Symphony who've been gracious enough to come in. It's fantastic to talk about not not only about the music, but about what it is to be in an orchestra. And, how to negotiate that, and mm -hmm. how, to, how to be a, a great player in the long term, preparation, all that sort of thing. So you know, we've been, we've been, I think, I hope a little bit better than making do. I'm trying to challenge the students to to do recording projects and learning parts and, and that sort of thing. So I, I, I'm having fun. I <laughs> don't know what anyone else is on the train, but yeah. But I, I'm hopeful that that the students are enjoying it. I think they are. And, I hope they're getting something from it. Yeah. Great. And at this point, it looks like we will be in the same situation for the second semester. Um, you know, I, I live in hopes that towards the end of the term, we might be able to do some things in small groups. But one of our issues in Toronto is, is uh, the university's commitment to help the city of Toronto keep the transit numbers down. Mm -hmm. I think they're trying to keep the transit at 30% capacity. So okay. that we want to give students uh, want to enable them to take as much as they can without coming downtown. So um, we're running some uh, private lessons in chamber music are, are in person, although a lot of the private lessons are happening online. But okay. yeah. So that's where we are. So a lot's going on. Yeah, yeah it was it was probably the, the most helpful thing at the beginning of all of this is when we were meeting and and you brought up that giant list of, of learning outcomes that you and your colleagues came up with at, at the university. And mm -hmm. I think it's it's a it's certainly a, a very important thing to think about for anyone else who's still, you know, trying to figure all of this out, but thinking about what actually goes into being an ensemble player. And we'll, you qu kind of quickly realize that a lot of things are doable and beneficial to the students and everything. So it, hears, it sounds like there's so much uh, great stuff that you're doing at U of mm -hmm. T. Um, speaking of students that you've had, yeah. my next question. Throughout the interview, I have <laughs> I have interspersed um, questions from past students, and this one comes from our friend uh, Stuart Sue. Um, 
Yeah. So he, like many people, I will put myself in the same uh, the same boat as him. Um, you know, feeling rather overwhelmed this year. So he's he's uh, asking, how do you stay recharged and your most expressive musical self despite the circumstances? How do you build yourself back up after feeling burnt out? Mm. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. <laughs> well, I mean, it's an excellent question, and I think I think everybody is. We're just we're just having to uh, manage our energy in such a different way, and especially people with some experience teaching. Um, you know, you know what it takes to get through a Tuesday afternoon. You know what it takes to get to Thursday, and and all of that is is out the window now because of mm-hmm. the outlay to do things that uh, the way we're doing it this year. Whatever it is, is different. So. Um, I mean, I try to take the long, a long view as much as I can. You know, the students actually um, are are always um, a source of energy for me because um, because you know I might be doing the Hindemith Symphony for the fourth, fifth, sixth time, but they're doing it for the first time, right? And so that that energy I find extremely um, in, uh, available and invigorating, and particularly this year, um, I find my students are having had everything taken um, effectively from them in the spring. They're they're really excited to be doing stuff, and so I'm finding them um, are a huge source source of motivation. Mm-hmm. And and um, you know the, this this we gotta we gotta not focus. We gotta we gotta be now, but. But we, uh, this is not going to be here forever, mm-hmm. um, and so we have to, we have to just keep, keep looking. And the students need us, so that for me is, is enough. Yeah, I think. Well, it's usually Mark Hopkins and I freaking out, and then you just say, "Guys, it's temporary." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it helps. Turns out it's turning out to be less temporary than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's you know. It will continue to change, and and we will be back together doing something, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, so we just we need to to really help the students as much as we can to to keep them on a trajectory of improvement and growth mm-hmm. and enthusiasm. Yes. Um, whenever I was. Uh not getting ready for the interview, but getting your episode ready. I have to, you know, I have to find a picture for the graphic and all that stuff. So I don't know, you don't really seem like the kind of person who would Google yourself, but if you do Google Dr. Jillian McKay conductor, um, not only does many beautiful pictures of Dr. McKay come up, but it's spectacular and heartwarming and inspiring to see how many pictures of your students come up that have, you know, now have jobs and now that are doing super cool things. And um, so I'd like to kind of talk to you about um, you as a conducting pedagogue. Mm -hmm. I guess my first question is, uh, what are some of the main musical technical elements a a conducting student should be pursuing? Or or what do you try to leave them with whenever they're, I don't want to say finished with you, but, (laughs) but done studying with you? Well, um, we always want our students to, to be independent learners, right? When they're, they're finished, so I would um, I would hope that that a student um, would 
know how to address any score and and have the ability to to get inside it, take it apart, um, make intelligent musical decisions, figure out a rehearsal plan, and and solve any problems uh, that came up with respect, real respect for the score and for the composer, mm-hmm. and with real respect um, for the players that they're dealing with. So I guess it's just the tools to to go through all the steps that, that they'll need to, to go through in order to get a, um, a piece and a group of players from from the beginning, from the first day when they open the score to the to the performances. Mm, great. And, uh, and this, this is something we've talked about uh, a lot, but as as someone, you know, who, who goes and does an undergraduate degree or a master's degree or even a doctorate, when you're at school, there's, you know, usually ample conducting opportunities if it's within the conducting studio or the conducting class or maybe it's with the rehearsal with the band or it's some off-campus group especially in Toronto there's so many things going on but I was wondering uh, if you had any kind of advice for for music students who are kind of struggling how to keep up um, conducting after after they leave school and don't have access to an ensemble what are some ideas for them to kind of practice I suppose (laughs) Yeah, that, that's a tough one because it's sort of, it is sort of built in when you're at school. You can always just, you know, buy your friends beers and get them <laughs> play through something. <clears throat> um, so, I mean, the same principle kind of applies once you're out is you just kind of have to create um, opportunities for yourself. Um, say yes to um, things where you think you might have a chance to, to get some podium time. Mm-hmm. Um, I often recommend that students join some kind of, of ensemble where they think that a leadership um, opportunity might arise, mm-hmm. um, like a good community group of some kind, um, and really sort of let people know that, that, that you conduct and that you're interested in conducting and that you love a chance to do it. Um, sort of put it out, send it out, set it out to the universe a bit. And, right. uh, and then, you know, start a, start a group or, or get a bunch of players together and try something. It's just, it's really an entrepreneurial kind of thing, which is, you know, we're, we're gradually figuring out a skill that we really need to be teaching at universities to help students with these skills. But a young conductor has to be a real entrepreneur, for sure. Mm-hmm. But you, there's never, an, not an opportunity, well, now there is, uh, but to get, to get people together, even if it's doing small chamber rep, it's, it's you getting in front of people trying to show things and, and getting that practice time, even if it's three people, even if it's four people. Well, and even um, if it's the pianist. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some wonderful pianists that, that are extremely responsive to conductors and will tell you, you know, actually, when you do that, it doesn't work so well, you know, just mm. feedback or brass quintet even, right? Who, under normal circumstances, would never yeah. have a conductor <laughs> in the room. But, <laughs> but again, for beer, they might. <laughs> Great, um, and every year, uh, even this year, you you host the uh, University of Toronto uh, conducting symposium, uh, which I've had the joy of going to uh, for a number of years, and I've gone to uh, many different symposiums, you know, across the country, and but. I quickly realized that there's really something special about the U of T symposium. I'm not just saying this because I studied with you and now you're a friend and a colleague, but um, there is truly something. And I was wondering if you could talk about how your symposium started um, and and what elements are important to you to create such kind of an uplifting educational experience after after the participants leave. Well, the, the symposium itself uh, was already 
had already had a few iterations before I got to U of T. Um, my predecessor, Denise Grant, okay. was the one who, who started it. Um, and my colleague uh, and her colleague at the time, Jeff Reynolds, um, uh, was her partner in that. And Jeff has, has been, you know, certainly my partner in the symposium. Uh, we started it in at the end of my first year, so the um, summer of 2006. And <clears throat> one of the one of the roles that I think this symposium plays because it happens right in the first week of July always, and people are just coming out of school, people who teach, um, and no one in their right mind would go downtown to the university uh, to a symposium the week after school. That's out unless it was. <laughs> you know, a little bit interesting and refreshing. So my goal has always been to provide something for teachers that just give them a bit of a shot in the arm. Mm -hmm. And then over time, uh, we've had more and more young conductors coming, um, graduate students, but also advanced undergraduates. And I, I really appreciate the chance to, to work with these folks. And and, and really the, the idea is to motivate them to uh, invest in their own development for the the 361 days that we're not together. <laughs> yeah. right? And this is often a, a, an issue with symposia, right? You do this really intense work and then it all sort of goes to pieces. So um, I think uh, the guests that we've chosen to have, the guest faculty, um, we choose these very carefully because we, I, you know, a lot of people have been to symposia where it doesn't always feel safe. Mm -hmm. Or the clientele at the symposium are are competitive. You know, symposia are a way traditionally for people to investigate teachers, investigate schools, shop a bit for graduate programs. And that can lead to a kind of competition that I find relatively unpleasant. Mm -hmm. I did when I was a grad student myself. But, <laughs> um, so I, I kind of worked really hard um, along with Jeff to create a community right from the first day focused on collaboration and, and support, you know, um, rather than competition. So I don't know, it was just fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that answers the question perfectly. Because I know, like you said, there's just... Well, not so many times in my life, but I, I've definitely heard stories, um, you know, going to symposia and just getting ripped <laughs> apart. And some people don't get back up. And, you know, maybe that's that's the thing that, that gets them to quit or try a little less and, and so on. But but it's sincerely such a wonderful experience every time uh, we go to the U of T symposium, especially when we read those letters. And at the end of August, when we have to go back to school, reminding, yep. you know, what our best self said to us is <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a, a great thing, but you've, you're a master of, of bringing life experiences into kind of the musical experience. And we talked about that on our last, our last recorded chat um, about uh, just kind of your, your skill of, of using metaphor and analogy in, in ensemble teaching and in teaching in general. Um, and I've, kind of noticed that this is something that has entered enters your research as well, kind of bringing things that aren't necessarily, and I use air quotes, um, musical, and apply them to conducting be it, uh, your, your study in mime, and now um, your study with uh, Michael Chekhov's acting technique. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could kind of talk about 
um, how, I guess, how you discovered these two topics and, and what kind of inspired you to, to try to apply it to conducting, um, and then especially the, the checkoff. Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, actually, it was, it was really the same person um, who started all of this because it was Bud Beyer, who was the head of the theater department at Northwestern. Okay. And he uh, had a mime company uh, at Northwestern. Um, and uh, John Painter uh, called him up apparently one day and said, have you ever worked with conductors? And the buyer said, no. And he said, well, good, you know, come to the band room on Monday morning. <laughs> and you will. And, and so um, John Painter, in his, in his way, uh, got Bud Beyer involved with working with conductors. So fast forward to to various uh, wind conducting symposia, um, and Bud Byer was, was going on the circuit a little bit, um, coming to wind conducting symposia and offering feedback. Uh, and I was really interested in what he had to say because he was not a musician, but he was speaking purely from a physical clarity of message point of view, and I found that really interesting. Um, I wanted to know more about that and I decided the way to do that would be not not necessarily working from the point of view of, of using it for conducting but to find out about mine myself and then mm. apply it um, to myself. So um, I, I studied um, mine then uh, for a little while based on based on that. Um, and then also one of the one of the people that Bud Byer spoke of when he spoke at a symposium I heard about it Calgary in the 1980s <laughs> um, was was Michael Chekhov and he talked about the way Chekhov could transform himself physically that 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 he was unrecognizable as himself often um, on the stage uh, and I just sort of had that I remembered that and put it in the back of my brain and I had a sabbatical um, a while ago and decided to see if I could find anybody who was working with the Chekhov technique. And as mm -hmm. I took um, there were several people in Canada and, and now there's a, there's a quite a large international um, society too. That, that so that's, that's how, how that got. So it was really Bud Byer implanted both of those seeds. Oh, and, you know, both, both of them are, I see as sort of two branches of the same thing, which is, is how we can, uh, what we can learn from other art forms that that use gestural gesture for communication mm -hmm. that's really what we do um so yeah i found it extremely fruitful extremely interesting hey everybody dylan maddox here to talk to you about something that is crucially important in today's world merchandise of all the things happening now in the world nothing is more important than some sweet merch so be the coolest kid or teacher at school with your very own Bandroom Podcast clothing. Show that you are a true bandy, loud and proud, with a BRP t-shirt, long sleeve shirt, or maybe a pullover hoodie, or as our friends in Saskatchewan call them, bunny hugs. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you want to start your day off with the Bandroom Podcast, drinking from your BRP coffee mug. Mmm makes that coffee and tea taste even better. 
You can rest easy knowing that all funds go directly back to helping support the podcast with hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Check out all the merch at bandroompod.com store. Don't miss your chance to support BRP by purchasing some cool merch. you know my my knowledge of of either is is only kind of from be it the little bit that we've got to do in class or or from the symposiums um but would um say say your study of mine do you find that helps a lot with any kind of tension that you find yourself applying as a conductor just being able to show something without actually you know tensing up your body yeah i mean i think the training both of them help because because especially checkup actually helps for keeping the body relaxed because one of the primary uh, tenets of the checkup technique is to have a feeling of ease, mm-hmm. right? So that the, the, um, the character may not have ease, but the actor must, right? right. So the music may not have ease, but the, but the conductor must. So, you know, it's always trying to find that, that space between intensity and tension, right? And, and showing the appropriate amount mm-hmm. of intensity without a lot of the body to get too tight. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I find it, it useful for all kinds of just ways of being aware of, of the body as I'm conducting, which means that if it does start to tighten up, I'm, I'm more likely to um, sense it, I guess, um, right. if I have more um, bodily awareness, proprioception. Mm-hmm. And the, the other really, uh, the f- aspect that I find fascinating is whenever we're kind of doing it, we're throwing the energy or, or radiating, I guess is what Chekhov calls it. Um, and just like how, how uh, much that translates to us as conductors and, and, you know, actually working with our students or our ensemble. Um, so that's been especially helpful um, yeah. for me. Um, but I want to stay on kind of this topic of, of symposium just because uh, of one of the conversations we had this year. And it's a, a conversation that um, was, I don't know how to describe it. It was hard to have, but it was probably one of the most impactful conversations I've, I've had lately that had really got me thinking. Um, and it's, it was kind of um, how we as conductors and music educators know um, when to listen, when we're talking about diversity and diversifying our field and when, when is it important for us to listen and when is it important for us to do is, is one of the questions you asked. Uh, and as well, how do we look at ourselves more carefully and our biases, um, be it if, if me as a white male is programming music or, or inviting guests or whatever it is. Um, so I was wondering if, if you could tell us a bit about your own personal journey addressing kind of these issues of diversity that have, that have come up, especially this year with like Black Lives Matter, for example, um, and these calls and, and how maybe we can begin that process ourselves as, as music educators. Yeah, this is, you know, we're really in need of of these conversations. And as you said, initially, they're very difficult to have. Um, And so that, I mean, we had this conversation at the symposium. This is, this is an online symposium with, with 50 people. And I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to work. Um, but I felt strongly, and, and so did uh, Jason Kessler and, and Jeff Reynolds, that we, we needed to 
have a conversation about about privilege, right? Um, and the the sort of path I've been on is is you know having conversations with friends of mine who are doing really intensive work in the in the sort of decolonization of of both music education and, and art education, mm-hmm. um, and and just sort of starting to come to terms with how privilege um, expresses itself um, in obvious ways and in, and in very subtle ways, and just trying to uh, get get to ch- come to terms with how it's expressed itself in my experience, um, and you know as as we're speaking about it in July, it sort of feels to me like a bit of a, of a continuum always where, you know, um, there was, there was a moment in my career when, when women could, were not in the privileged mm-hmm. um, domain. And now there's a moment in my career where as a woman, I'm, I'm in a, in a very good place in my career, you know, so it's, that things are things are moving and shifting, and um, as you can tell, I'm struggling with this answer because I, I really want to be really want to answer it thoughtfully. Yeah. But it's we privilege is is often invisible to those that are carrying it, and that's where we need to look. And so, uh, one of the things I learned this summer was you know, shut up. <laughs> And 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 ask uh-huh. and listen and then don't necessarily try to create solutions. Just sometimes, just listen. Yeah. And so um, and we, you know, we have to, we have a lot of work to do with our repertoire. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do with the diversity of of the people who are teaching. Um, wind band, and um, we just really need, really needs to reflect our community as a whole a lot better. So, yeah, absolutely, and it's it's a discussion that we've been having on the podcast for the past couple of weeks. Um, I guess mostly from a, the composer standpoint, just because um, we talked about it with Giovanni Santos, and we talked about it with Katie Nishimara as well. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about is. Um, I guess, and you you talked about it, how privilege is often invisible to us, uh, or our own privilege is invisible to us, but um, kind of, it's hard work, and you have to kind of force yourself to start thinking about it a little bit, and it doesn't feel natural, (laughs) maybe right away, Um, but it's certainly something we should start doing. Because I remember once I was on the subway with Olivia Short, and I was so excited about this Toronto Winds program, I was so, so excited. And I showed her it, and she immediately called me out um, for the lack of diversity on the program. And that has been something that has stuck with me <laughs> ever since. And it's something that I immediately kind of try to think about whenever I'm picking music. Um, like you said, we need music that's representative of our students um, and our community as well. Um, so originally, this interview was supposed to be um, with the Ontario Music Educator Conference. So it was going to be a kind of a live thing uh, with an audience and lots of audience participation. So instead, I've asked some people some questions. They will recreate that live feel. My next question comes 
from another student. How exciting. Okay. This one is, was a graduate student of yours who is now teaching in New York. Um, this is a question from Leah McRae. <laughs> um, and she's wondering, and this isn't something I, I don't think um, maybe many people know, but um, you're someone who meditates um, often. So she was wondering, uh, how has your meditation practices changed your relationship with music? Mm. Well, I think it's, I mean, it's changed my relationship with everything, but um, I actually think I concentrate better in rehearsal than I used to. I think I listen better. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think I'm more open to my students. And so that, um, that has a, I mean, that has an impact on, on everything. So um, I would say that, I mean, in terms of the music itself, um, it's, in, it's influenced um, a bit about my approach to repertoire, I guess. I'm not, I'm not uh, as interested in, in music that's as aggressive, maybe, as I used to. <laughs> No more forte Weird. piano crescendos with it, accents. With an really. <laughs> uh, but that, I mean, that's I'm not I'm not sure that that's that's really a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's I think I think it has uh, given me the opportunity for a little bit more openness with my students and with, with my scores. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's something that I'm. Like, I mean, I can't speak directly to it because I, I myself do not meditate, but um, I think often when we try to th think of how can we improve our, our musicianship and ourselves, we have to first think about how we can improve ourselves <laughs> um, and, and think about the self-care and, and, and mindfulness and all of these things. So uh, a great example of that. Um, like I, I said, I'm oh, sorry. But I, I also think that um, I think I'm less reactive. <laughs> right so yeah. i think you know um that is maybe made for just a little bit more evenness and and perhaps it expresses itself as patience i don't know mm -hmm. but i think that's that's part of it as well i would believe that so this next question comes from a current student maria brown um yes trumpeter um so in in the changing job landscape how do we or job landscape with the pandemic, with everything, I guess. And we kind of talked about this a little bit. How do we stay positive about a career in music and stay positive? Mm. I think, I mean, there's, we want to be sure that we don't mix staying positive with, with a lack of reality. I mean, the reality is that it's, that it's fairly weak right now. Um, however, um, that, we can choose how we respond to that. Yep. So, um, you know, it's it's not like it's ever been a particular growth industry, certainly in my career time. So, um, but somebody is going to be making music and somebody is going to be writing music and somebody is going to be performing it and, and somebody is going to be teaching it and people are going to be learning it. So okay. it's not like we're just going to forget all that because there's this interruption now. So um, 
it may become more competitive, mm -hmm. uh, which means that our that our skills become particularly important, and the, the whole range of skills, including the entrepreneurial skills, um, are going to become particularly important. Um, and probably ability with with technology is going to become really important too. But mm -hmm. but the positivity is going to come, I think, from from our excitement for the work. Right? Um, when you're dealing with with the the artifacts from the great minds, you know, you get to work with an artifact from the mind of Mozart or Beethoven. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how. That's oh my lord. I mean, that's a tremendous gift. Right. So. So that those are the sorts of things to be positive about. Personal development, personal growth is something to be positive about. Meeting meeting short, medium, and long-term goals in our practice are things to be positive about. But if there's a certain amount of, um, sort of discipline and, and there's a bit of an act of faith right at the beginning mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're working on something. And then and then it starts to gain some of its own momentum. And then it takes over, that momentum takes over some of the positivity for you. So, but it, you know, and I think, um, being around people who have um, a positive outlook is really important, and, mm -hmm. and inclining your mind towards positive outlooks is important. Because if you're if you're focused on this is this this if you're focused on the negative parts of it, that's the way your mind is going to go. That's the, the pathway you're going to build in your, in your brain. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's. It's uh, we need we need our community to help us, but it's um, there's going to be work. Like you said, it is temporary, and and even even then, and the, just to kind of build off of another thing you said, surrounding yourself with positive people. Although we feel very disconnected at this time, um, we're probably more connected, or we have the ability to connect um, more than ever. We've always had Zoom or Skype, but I don't know what it is. It's just like oh, now we have Zoom. <laughs> When we when we could meet in person, that we we just didn't accept it as a substitute, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea of, of zooming into a meeting, right? It's like, what? Get, get your lazy butt over to the office, <laughs> you know? Um, but now it's 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 a completely different thing, and I think I think that's a that's a real a real bonus, and but it has made us really appreciate, um, you know, physical proximity and being being able to, to physically be together. But I heard it expressed beautifully. Um, actually, at a Michael Chekhov workshop this summer, which is online, and there's a young woman from Brazil who said, "You know, we're not under the same roof this summer, but we're still under the same sky." Wow, that's great. And and you know, we're in that situation. We were we were united. You know, um, Chekhov students from all over the world united in the, in that particular Zoom room and, and wherever we are. So, um, Oma, can you imagine going through this without? This way of communicating, right? What we had with ye oldie telephony, you know, yeah. So, so it's it's yeah. It's there's a lot of there's a lot. We still have a lot. Mm -hmm. This next question comes from Amy Abbott uh, at T A Blakelock in Oakville, and she's wondering. This is a, this is a good question. What's your favorite piece of music to conduct? Oh my. Mm. Dead air, dead air. Uh, I don't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> dead air for band. Um, <laughs> you know, I it's I conducted Child's Garden of Dreams for the first time in February uh, with the uh, central band from mm -hmm. Ottawa, 
and that was put them together with the one ensemble, and that was pretty awesome. I gotta say, um, that was also one of the last times I conducted, so maybe that's that's why it immediately pops to mind. But certainly, Nazanka um, or or um, Colgrass, um, uh, Winds of the Wall, yeah, pretty awesome. And Mazlanka 4, actually, Mazlanka 4 Symphony is, is tremendous. Mm. And both of those composers you had at U of T? Yeah, yeah, we were, we were well, we were so lucky with, with Michael Colgrass because he, mm. he used to live just down, down by the water and he would come, he would come every time we did a piece of his, he would come up and, and work with the group and give him advice and it was, it was tremendously helpful. And David Mazlanka was with us. <clears throat> Almost ten years ago now, and we did the eighth symphony, and that was life changing. And just, you know, was such an incredible, incredible man. Great. I guess I will ask the last question, and it's a question that I've asked you before on this podcast. But could you give a single, maybe two, pieces of advice to young conductors? Not even young conductors. Conductors, you can't repeat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> a single piece of advice. To young conductors, work on your ear. No, you know, you said that in the last interview. Think of something else. Work <laughs> on your other ear. <laughs> the left one. Okay. Uh, if I said that, then I then if your ear is already uh, impeccable, then I would say um, work on your ability to interact with humans in a meaningful and positive mm -hmm. way. Yeah. That is a good one. And I think it's something that we don't really think about either. We think you're either good at communicating with someone or you're bad with communicating. Um, and it's something that you can practice and improve upon. Well, I mean, this is the whole point of neuroplasticity, right? And, and, but, but it's an interesting point because I find this with, with young students. They believe often that, you know, everyone comes out of the womb with whatever they've got and then that's mm -hmm. it, right? So it's much more talented than I am. And, and, um, talent, you know, is not only overrated, but it's, it's, uh, you know, if you work at something, you can change, you can change it. That's just true. Yes. So, um, and actually, if, if you can convince a student of that at any point, uh, you can open up a space for them to change their lives in every way. Because, because if they believe that they can, learn something or change the way they're doing something, then they can believe they can learn anything and change the way they do everything. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big, big believer in that. Beautiful. A beautiful way to end our, our conversation. So I just, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time to talk with us and, and sharing your experiences and your wisdom and everything. Yeah. And I'm so grateful I to call you a mentor you. and a friend. You're just, you're great. Don't forget it. <laughs> so thank you so much, Jillian.
a big giant thanks to Jillian for taking the time to share her experiences and thoughts with us today. And a huge thanks to all of you for spending time with us today in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything you've heard, I have attached links to the show notes found on our website, bandroompod.com, where you can find out more about what we spoke about and the music used for today's episode. If you really like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast and give us that rating and review and tell everyone you know how much you enjoyed listening. If you really love the show, consider donating to our GoFundMe page or buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. And if you have thoughts on today's episode, leave me a comment on our website or even cooler, leave me a voicemail on our hosting website, anchor.fm slash bandroompod slash message. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the bandroom.